0: We've been working our way through Luke's Gospel, and we've come to Luke and chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. Our Lord Jesus cleansed the temple and began preaching the Gospel and teaching the people. He had been challenged by the Pharisees with regard to his authority, and he has uh, rebuked them. And then in verse 9, Luke chapter 20 and verse 9, he began to tell the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to vine dressers, tenant farmers, we might say, and went into a far country for a long time. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent another servant, and they beat him also, treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. And again he sent a third, and they wounded him also, and cast him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, "This is the heir. come, let us kill him, and the, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, Certainly not." God forbid, let it never be. Then he looked at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it it falls, it will grind him to powder. And the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the people for they knew he had spoken this parable against them. Let's pray. Lord, there are rich, weighty things in this parable. We cannot grasp them without your help. Lord, give to us, we pray, your spirit, so that your truth may reach every heart, the proper place, in the proper way, at the right time, that we might receive and respond to what you are saying. Hear us, O God, we ask. In Jesus' name, Amen. amen. Some people seem to be able to pack very small. Go on holiday with somebody and they've got a little bag. Then they open it up and everything seems to explode. Looks like they've got the entire wardrobe in a small bag. I've got a particular Uh, sleeping bag that I love it's a full-size sleeping bag but it goes into what's called a stuff sack and it's it's very lightweight and it goes down to something like this it's it's tiny once you put all that stuff in and there's that beautiful moment where you pull it out of the stuff sack and it just pops and all that's gone into that little bag this parable is like a stuff sack it's amazing how much there is here The Lord Jesus has packed the entire history of salvation into the story of a vineyard. The vineyard drama is the stuff sack. Inside is the whole plan of God's saving purpose in Jesus Christ. Our Lord tells this story as, as part of this battle which has been joined in which he rode up as king to Jerusalem and received the praises of his people. And when the Pharisees resented it, why are they singing these praises to you? The Lord Jesus said that is perfectly right and appropriate. The king is coming and it's proper that the people should praise. If they didn't, the very stones themselves would cry out. And then he went into the temple and he saw the the money changers and the sellers of sacrifices and he drove them out because they had made his father's house a den of thieves. And having cleansed the temple, he began to do what the temple was always intended to be for, to preach and to teach, to make God known to the people. The Pharisees reacted angrily. Who are you to do these things? Who gives you the right? Where do you get this authority from? And if you remember, he he went back to John the Baptist. And he said, you tell me where John's ministry came from, and I'll tell you where my ministry came from. Was it from heaven, or was it from men? And they're stuck. Because if they say from heaven, then they'll be asked, well, why didn't you believe him and repent? If they say from men, well, the people will be angry because they all think that John is a prophet. The Lord Jesus says, if you're not prepared to face the truth of John's authority, then I'm not going to tell you where my authority comes from. And then he begins to tell them this parable. This is the Lord Jesus now going back on the offensive. This is him responding to the way that they have dealt with him. He restates his authority. Again, you've, you've heard the Lord Jesus say again and again, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And we'll see that the problem isn't that the Pharisees don't know the answer to their questions. The Pharisees don't want the answers to their questions. And the Lord Jesus is not only declaring his authority, but he's also making clear how it will ultimately be exercised. And he does it all within this drama, this drama in the vineyard. And I want, as it were, to try and sit in an audience and watch the drama unfold. But remember, it's a drama with a purpose, with a lesson. So we'll look at the scenery in this drama. Then we'll think about the cast that our Lord Jesus introduces. Then we'll look at the acts in this drama and the lesson that we learn. But then you're going to need to step outside. You know, the fourth wall, the idea of the fourth wall, when you're watching a television program and all of a sudden someone speaks to you, and you think, oh, it's not then a story that I'm watching, I'm actually a part of these things. If you like, the Lord Jesus breaks the fourth wall and he speaks directly to the audience. Let's try and follow then the drama of the vineyard, the scenery. It is a vineyard. And the vineyard is almost a character in its own right in this drama. It's a rich and fertile place. It's been prepared for blessing. A certain man planted a vineyard. Boys and girls, what do you plant in vineyards? Grapes. Grapes. What's the plant called? Grapevine. Grapevine. Good, okay. Yeah, not a trick question. In a vineyard, you plant a vine. And the owner has planted a vineyard. He's prepared this environment that is rich, that is fertile. It is everything that might be needed for vines to grow and bear abundant fruit. It's a place that is full of privilege, a place that is ripe with promise. It is representative of all the advantages and opportunities of God's covenant people. The people upon whom God sets his love. This is a picture of the favour of the divine kingdom. The abounding fruitfulness of God's chosen people. And all the way through the Old Testament and into the New, God's people would have immediately recognized, understood, and entered into this kind of imagery. So in chapter 5 of Isaiah, Let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. So as soon as the Lord Jesus talks about a man with a vineyard, this is where the mind of the people he's speaking to goes. He dug it up, cleared out its stones, planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst, made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild? And now, please, let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it shall be burned and break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression for righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. Now, remember where the Lord Jesus is doing this. He's in the temple. And apparently he could have pointed behind him because in Herod's temple, the second temple, the, uh, the king had begun and, and the other Jews had now begun to, to add to it. They had actually put up a golden vine with jewels hanging off it around the gates of the temple. Everything around here shouts about the beauty and the glory of God's vineyard and the vine that he has planted in it. It represents all the blessing of God. And there in the vineyard, this vine is growing that is meant to be abundantly fruitful. And all the history and all the prophecy of Israel says that God's vine flourishes in God's vineyard when it is properly cared for. This is why I say that the the scenery is almost a character in itself. Okay, so you're now standing in this glorious, green, leafy, fruitful vineyard. Let me now introduce to you the cast. There's a certain man, there are vine dressers, there are servants, and there is a son. A certain man is described as being the owner. He's the one who's provided and secured everything in this vineyard. And he's got a claim on it all. But having put it into the care of others, he's gone away for a long time. If you've been following through on Luke, you'll remember that this sounds a bit like the master who went away for a long time in chapter 19 and verse 12. But this owner has prepared the vineyard. He's provided everything that is needed for its fruitfulness. He's planted it. He's provided all of this good thing in anticipation of fruit coming from it. Who is this man? He is the Lord God of Israel. He is the one who has called and blessed his people. He put them in the promised land. He has showered all his covenant goodness upon them. And he expects from them the worship that delights his heart and the honour that they ought to give to him. A certain man who is the Lord God. Then you have the vine dressers. Now, these are tenants in the vineyard. These are the men to whom responsibility has been given in order to care for the vineyard. And they represent the, the leaders and perhaps the people of Israel. And then you've got the servants. These are men who are sent by the owner to those tenant farmers as his representatives. They are the prophets of the old covenant. They're the Isaiah's and the Jeremiah's and the Ezekiel's and the Hosea's and the Daniel's and the Joel's. There are these men who come to speak on behalf of the owner to the tenants in the vineyard, who speak on behalf of God to the leaders in Israel. And then there is the son. He is the owner's beloved one. He is the owner's truest representative. He is the heir of the vineyard. He has a legal claim on it all. And he is his final spokesman. Who is the beloved of the owner? Who is the beloved of God? Luke chapter 3, Luke chapter 9. This is my beloved son. It's publicly testified. In whom I am well pleased. You can tie in there if you know Hebrews chapter 1. God who spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his son. There's your cast. Four individuals or groups. The certain man, the Lord God. The vine dressers, the tenant farmers, the leaders of Israel. The servants who are the prophets and the son, who is Jesus Christ. And they're acting out this drama in the vineyard. So let's watch now what happens as the drama unfolds. And it's a drama in three parts. First of all, act one, vintage time. Act two, persistent patience. Act three, the son comes. Act one, vintage time. The harvest has been growing. The vineyard is prosperous. Everything is situated for its advantage. And now the time has come for the owner to gather in the fruit to which he is entitled. And so he sends a servant. And he calls upon the tenant farmers to give to him the fruit that is his due. Here is the Lord God sending his prophet to call the people to honor, worship, and adore him, to give to him the worship and obedience to which he is entitled. But the vine dressers beat. The servant. Their reaction immediately is to do him harm and they send him away empty handed. They reject the rights of the owner to the vineyard and the fruits of it. Here are the prophets now who start coming to the people of Israel on behalf of the Lord God and call them to give to God what is God's by right. And the first act ends. With the owner having sent his servant, and the servant's been beaten and thrown out empty-handed. So there's tension at the end of Act 1. Now, what could happen in Act 2? It would be perfectly proper if Act 2 began with the owner sending down a troop of armed men to take back what is his. But that is not what happens in Act 2. Act 2 is surprising. Act 2 is persistent patience. The owner sends other servants. The owner doesn't react the way that he might have done with justice. The owner responds with mercy, with patience with kindness not once but again and again every opportunity is given to the tenants of the vineyard to repent of their rebellions their rejection their violence and to repair the damage that has been done to restore relationships with the owner of the vineyard but rather than taking advantage of the mercy and the goodness and the kindness that he shows they ramp up their arrogance and their aggression notice how it gets even worse first of all they beat him and sent him away empty-handed so he sent verse 11 another servant they beat him also treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed not just violence now not just brutality but disdain they're pouring scorn upon him they're exposing him utterly he sent a third not enough now to just give him a beating they're going to wound him and they cast him out This is getting worse and worse. The more patience the owner shows, the more violence they respond with. The more kindness he gives to them, the more aggressive they are in reaction. The more he waits, the further the opportunities he gives, the more aggressive and violent they are in response. It is the language of brutal contempt. And it is the picture of Israel's dealings with the Lord God of heaven. Suppressing persecuting and abusing the prophets of God and you find this even amongst the prophets themselves remember jeremiah comes toward the end of the uh, the, the kingdom uh, of of God when there is uh, now this growing threat that they will be taken into exile this is his Language. This is his sense. Since the days that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day, I have even sent to you all my servants, the prophets, daily rising up early and sending them. Yet they did not obey me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. Even Jeremiah himself. You can imagine, perhaps this is the third prophet who comes in and he sees the people coming towards him. And and remember, in Jeremiah's experience, this means he's going to be cast into a pit without bread and water initially. He's going to be disdained and despised. And as he sees the tenant farmers coming towards him with their weapons out, Jeremiah says, this is exactly what you've done to the men who came before. My master has sent again and again with patience and with mercy. God rose up early. God put himself out, we might say, in order that you might know the truth. But here you are, and there's disdain, and there's violence, and there is aggression. And our Lord has already warned the people of Israel that that's what they've done. Remember some of the imagery he's already used? You build the tombs of the prophets. And so you actually show that you're endorsing, in effect, the way that your forefathers treated them. Act two closes with a bleeding man lying outside the wall of the vineyard. The trails of blood of the servants, beaten, wounded, and thrown out. Act three. Is this where the warriors come? Is this now where God sends his wrath and his vengeance upon these wicked men and women? No, the owner in Act 3 says, I know what I'll do. I'll send my son. Now, remember that this is a drama. It's not God saying, well, maybe this one will work out. I'll try plan B or C or D. It's representing what's taking place. The son's going to go now. It may be that they will respect him. And not just any old son. The son that he loves, his only son. The one who is the heir of all these things. The one who has authority to act. And the tenants see him coming. And they don't say, oh, we're not sure who this guy is. What they say is, ah, now it's the son. Let's kill him and we'll inherit the vineyard ourselves. Now, there's insanity in this. There's a kind of a moral madness on more than one level. What's their first assumption? That the owner's already dead. Because if we can kill the son, there's no one else to worry about. The owner to them is now utterly irrelevant. As far as they're concerned, he's already out of the picture. The other part of their madness is this. In what possible just system can you kill the heir and become the heir yourself? How does that work? What kind of twisted logic is this? That by denying the owner and killing the heir, you somehow come into rightful possession of all that belongs to them? But it's what they do. They cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. They carry out their wicked plan they do just what they intended it's not how you expect the drama to finish is it at this point act 1 the beautiful vineyard act 2 the persistence and the patience and the mercy act 3 the sun comes but now he's dead killed and cast out This is the history of salvation. This is divine mercy to God's old covenant people over centuries. The Lord Jesus has got the entire Old Testament in the stuff sack of this parable. It is a direct, though veiled, revelation of his identity and authority. If they've got ears to hear... They know what he's saying. Jesus is the son. He is the beloved of his father. He has come to receive what is his by right. He is the true representative with a legal claim to everything. And the problem is not then that they don't recognize the son. The problem is that having recognized him, they want to kill him. Because they want the kingdom for their own ends. Here is the inherent selfishness, vindictiveness, and covetousness of these Pharisees. And our Lord Jesus breaks the fourth wall. He starts to speak to the audience. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? See, all of a sudden... The audience have become a part of the story. What next for the owner? What next for the owner who's been so wickedly spurned by these tenants? He will come. He will come. Mercy has been rejected. Now justice must be done. He will destroy those Vine dressers. Now, before you respond, if you might be thinking, well, hang on, isn't that a bit heavy handed? Friends, they tortured, beat, and killed his representatives. They saw his son coming and they thought, let's hope he's dead and we'll take him out of the equation and all this is ours. And the man who says that he will come and destroy those vine dressers is the man who, at the prospect of that destruction, wept tears of profound grief over the city upon which these judgments would fall. He will destroy those vine dressers and he will give the vineyard to others. He's going to bestow all those blessings on other people. He's going to act in strict justice, but continued mercy. They have tortured his servants. They have murdered his son. Upon these tenants, his judgments must fall. But he will give all of that blessing, all of that goodness, all of that favour to others. Now, if Israel is the vine... And the vineyard is God's covenant blessing. Who must the others be? You follow the logic? There's only one group of others. Everybody who's not a Jew. That's the division of the ancient world. That's the ethnic dividing line. Jews and everybody else. That's how his audience are hearing this. And they get it. What will the owner do? I tell you, says the Lord Jesus, he will punish those vine dressers and he will pass on his vineyard to someone else. He's going to bring down his judgments on rebellious Israel. And he will bestow all the fruits of his covenant love and mercy upon the nations of the world. This is the tipping point of the history of salvation. This is when the gospel goes out to all the world. The scene is the vineyard. The caste, the owner, the Lord God, the tenants, the Israelites, the servants, the prophets, the son, the Lord Jesus himself. The acts in this drama of the vineyard have progressed The vintage time has come. The harvest is called in. Then there's this patience, persistence, this mercy and kindness. The sun has come and the sun has been killed and the fourth wall has been broken. What happens next? What happens next? Now you need to understand that all of a sudden the audience realise that they're on the stage. The audience realise that they are part of this drama. Who's watching As the Lord Jesus tells this tale. Tenant farmers. They're not outside the story. They're part of the story. Look at their reaction. When they heard it, they said, certainly not. God forbid, let it not be so. This is the gut reaction of the Jewish people at the prospect that God will take his blessing from them and pour out judgments upon their heads and give those blessings to the nations of the world. It is horrified outrage. Now, they don't seem to be outraged at the behavior of the tenant farmers. They don't seem to be mortified because the the servants have been tortured and beaten and cast out. There's no horror at the fact that the son should have been killed and ejected. But the idea that the owner should take the blessings from them and give them to the despised nations. of No, 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 that's not on. That's not right. That cannot be the case. God will never deal like that with us. God will never punish us for such sins, and God will never give these blessings to other people. Then he looked at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. See, all of a sudden the scenery collapses. And the players fade into the background. And the sun is talking to the tenants. What happens when you're scared? When you're dealing with bullies, angry men and women, what's the hardest thing to do? One of the things I find difficult is looking them in the eye. When someone's after me, someone's attacking me, insulting me, it's easier just to say hard things looking away or just would rather I was somewhere else. The Lord Jesus looks around into the eyes of the men and women with whom he is dealing. There's another part of the Gospels where the Lord Jesus looks around with grief and with anger. Luke doesn't say that's the case here. But I suspect that we could very easily pick up those emotions and bring them in and, as it were, drop them down into the heart of our Saviour at this point. He looks them in the eye. The Christ who wept over the city is looking into the eyes of the people who want to do him harm. And he says, let me tell you how it is and let me tell you how it will be. A diagnosis. And a prognosis, how it is and how it will be. And you will not be able to deny it. And he quotes in Psalm 118. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Now, why is that significant? Because when he rode up into Jerusalem, the people sang from Psalm 118. The leaders have already said, this isn't appropriate, this isn't right, this isn't the way it should be. This isn't about you, and you should say it's not about you. And the Lord Jesus Christ says, that was about me, and this bit is about me too, and it's about you. The stone which the builders rejected. Now, the Jews typically would have thought, well, these builders, maybe they're the kings of the earth, maybe they're the great ones outside. No, says Jesus, you're now the builders. You're the ones who are rejecting the chosen stone. You say it's worthless, but it is the one that has been appointed for the cornerstone. It is the one that is to be honoured. You thought it had no place. You wanted no regard for it, but it is the chief foundation block. It establishes the whole, and on it and from it, everything that is good will be established. And whoever falls on that stone will be broken. But on whomever it falls, it will grind him to power, powder. If you resist. You will be broken. If you come against this stone and oppose yourselves, you will be broken. And when the stone falls in judgment, if you persist in your rebellion, you'll be crushed even to powder. What should you do when you hear such a fearful warning? You should stop rebelling. You should turn from your sins and trust in Him. Christ is giving these men and women another opportunity. The Son has come and the Son is saying, Watch out, turn now. Trust in me, turn to your God, and He will yet bless you. But if you resist and rebel, you will be broken on that stone, and that stone will crush you into dust. Do you notice what the Lord Jesus doesn't say? He doesn't say, and now we're going to fight. He doesn't say, we can make this story end a different way. The sun comes and the sun is killed and cast out. Do you remember how often on the road up to Jerusalem the Lord Jesus has said, I know where I'm going and I know why? Here he is again. He's written himself into the drama of the vineyard. He's come to suffer and to die. And in that way, the blessing of God will spread to the ends of the earth. The Lord Jesus is content to play his part in the drama of salvation and to anticipate the ultimate vindication that God will give to him. First of all, in his resurrection, and then in the great judgment of the last day. Chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him. Aren't there times you read the Bible and you sort of hang on, hang on? Don't they get it? Isn't this the point where the Pharisees go, hang on a minute? So we're the tenant farmers, and the son comes to us, and because we kill him and cast him out, we're going to be judged. You know, we've got to to do something about this now. No, that's exactly what they do. They play their part. It's it's, it's stunning blindness, isn't it? Don't you realise you're in the story? Don't you realise you've been swallowed up by the stage? Don't you realise you're in the third act? And you're now looking at the sun. And you're thinking and you're trying to do exactly what I've just said you're going to try and do. And they're so blinded by their rage. They're so antagonistic toward God and his Christ that they want to tear him in pieces there and then. If they could only now get hold upon him. And you see now the the tension is ramping up before they've been thinking now we need to stop this. We need to deal with this. And they challenged him with regard to his authority. And the Lord Jesus has intensified the situation. And now they're saying, you know, we can't wait another minute. We've got to deal with this now. This is not some slow burn problem. We need to take this man down now. This is the son. Let's kill him. Why? Because he's been telling this story to all the people and they're not stupid. They know what this is about. They know what's involved here. It's difficult to know exactly what they're afraid of at this point. Are they afraid of the people? Or they are now afraid that the people are going to understand the truth and do something about it. Who are you, Jesus of Nazareth? The problem isn't that they don't know. The problem is that he's told them and they hate him. They are determined to kill the son and to cast him out. We are not a congregation of first century Jews. But the Lord Jesus is still the one to whom you and I react. And there are only two possibilities when the sun draws near. The one is that you will receive him. The other is that you will reject him. Are you battling the stone or are you building upon him? Are you turning from him or are you turning to him? See, my friends, the very reason why I can stand here today and tell you these things is because the son was killed and because the owner of the vineyard took all those privileges and promises away from the people who'd rejected him and he gave them to others. You a Christian here this morning? Why? Because God is merciful still. Because God is gracious still. And because God is patient still and you and I are the inheritors of everything that the Lord Jesus promised here. This is what he has done for us. And now the good news echoes out into the world that he made. First Peter two and verse six chosen to him, coming to him, verse four, as to a living stone. Rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture. You see how the Lord Jesus argues from the Bible, and now his servant does as well. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect precious. And he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. See, there's another drama that's happening. And we're not just an audience We're participants. The blessings of God's covenant are being shed abroad in the earth. And God is calling you and me to come in to enjoy His mercies and to render to Him our worship, our adoration, our honour, and our service, to taste His goodness to enjoy his favour. And every Christian church has been made a steward of the covenant blessing of God. What a privilege we have. What mercy is ours. God could have taken it away and said, right, that's it. None of you know what to do with it. None of you is going to have these things. But no, he said... I will make the rejection by Israel the occasion of this good news going out to every man and woman, boy and girl. I will declare to every creature that whoever believes upon my son and trusts in him will obtain everlasting life. And Individually, many of us here this morning, we know what that means. And as a church, it is our privilege to steward what God has given us. And there's a warning there as well. Because this gracious gift is not something that we're entitled to, brothers and sisters. Not something that because God's given it to us, we can now do what we like and live how we please and hold back from God what truly belongs to him. It's to be treasured. It's to be stewarded. It's to be made fruitful and offered back to our God. We cannot say that God will never take these things away if we reject, despise and ignore God's mercy toward us. You enter his kingdom and you cannot and will not lose it. You build on this stone and it's yours and yours forever but there will come another day when the sun returns and he will come and he will fall upon all those who have stood against him and he will crush them to powder receiver or rejecter battler or builder. God is yet merciful. God is yet kind. God is yet patient. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way.